Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. In my home in Salt Lake, this is a Saturday afternoon, are my friends Dalton Bradford and Shelby Huey. Welcome to the podcast, you two. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'll give you a little bio on both of them. Shelby is um, a student at BYU in Middle East Studies in Arabic, um, also teaches at the MTC and served a mission in Malaysia. And Dalton Bradford is in the same major, Middle East Studies and Arabic. He graduates in December of 2020. Um, let's, let's say fingers crossed on that one. <laughs> fingers yeah. crossed on that one. He served a mission in England, London South Mission, which got consolidated into the Birmingham Mission. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about um, three subjects. Um, we're going to talk about LGBTQ. Um, no one here identifies as LGBTQ, so it'll be three allies talking about the subject. We're also going to talk about faith journeys, and those of you that are in the LDS Church and are sort of working through your faith as you're aware of complicated topics, we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about mental health. Um, for those of you, and many of our podcast episodes are focused on mental health, and many of you, like me, I've been honest about my own mental health. I've been walking that road. So I'm really grateful for these two. I reached out to Dalton to do this podcast. We've been connected on Instagram for a while. I've really loved his work and what he's doing. And I'm just now getting to know Shelby. We visited ahead of time and I'm, um, I've asked Shelby to be part of the podcast and share some of her thoughts. So Shelby, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. This was not planned whatsoever. <laughs> and, um, so sometimes it is true, a guest kind of comes and then they get roped into being the podcast. That's kind of what happened to Shelby. She's a, um, a good sport and, and has some really good insights. But um, Dalton, talk about, um, tell us, first of all, I want to make sure people can find you on Instagram. Tell people your Instagram my ID. Okay, it's, it's just a D-A-L underscore F-O-R-D. So it's just the first three letters of my first name and the last four letters of my last name. So Dahl Ford is where you would find that. And tell us about the flags. If someone's looking at your Instagram, tell us about you've got uh, maybe nine flags there. Yeah. Uh, Let me make sure that I can even, let me like pull it up so that I can explain all of them. Well, to summarize, those are all places that I've lived at some point in my life, and I tried to order it in just chronological order. So I was born in Norway, raised in France. I lived in France for eight years, but those eight years weren't consecutive. So we moved from Norway when I was two and a half. I was in France for four years after that. Then we moved to the States for 10 months and then back to France for four years. After that was Germany for three years, Singapore for two years, Switzerland for two years. And then I served my mission in England, as you said. And then I was in Jordan for only four and a half months on my study abroad. But even just during that time, I tried to put down roots and really live the experience of being in Jordan as much as I could, aside from the fact that I'm also extremely privileged and it was definitely not as expensive (laughs) for me to live there as it is for native Jordanians. Uh, And then I have the LGBTQ flag there as well as a cross to kind of 
I don't know. I, I hope it's a way for people to just a little clue as to the fact that those are both things that I care a lot about. And we're going to talk about that. Will you tell people this quote that you've got on your Instagram? Oh, that is, <laughs> that's, a, that's a line from my favorite rap artist. Um, so his rap name is Lupe Fiasco, but his, um, this is probably, by the way, the only shout out you'll ever get to Lupe Fiasco on a podcast. True. If he's listening, I hope that he looks me up because he is my idol, but <laughs> shameless plug. Um, so Lupe Fiasco, but his full name is Wasulu Muhammad Jacob, and he's a Southside Chicago rapper, Muslim. And I've been listening to him since I was like 10 years old. And there's a song that he has called Dots and Lines on one of his albums called Tetsuo and Youth. And that line, when he said it, just like stood out to me. I just can't stop thinking about it. And there's something that might take issue with it because I know people, even like Elder Christofferson has said things like, well, to say that God's love is unconditional is misinterpreting scripture. It's never said that in any of the scriptures, but I thought it was really interesting. Um, actually, I can read the quote because yeah, we haven't, we haven't even said what the quote is yet, but it's um, any love less than unconditional is so under Christian it's unrepentant. And I thought that was a, I just love how direct it was and just saying that, of course, you know, you have to set boundaries. And we were talking about that a little bit before. And you have to, you have to be genuine in your love as well. And, and, and it's, it's so much deeper than just that one line that I read, but I at least strive to not have strings attached to my love or conditions attached to my love, but just loving people because they're valued. And that he said, it's, it's unrepentant as well. I thought was very interesting because when we talk about repentance in the church, really in almost any faith community, anyways, we talk about mistakes and we talk about thou shall not commit adultery, thou shall not kill. And those are all true, of course, but uh, failing to show uh, love is, I think, failing to, to get the whole point of religion anyway. And it's something that I need to repent of as well. Something I need to change once in a while. I love that. And I, I just believe nothing we can do can take us outside of God's love. And so I believe that makes me like the word unconditional. We can disappoint God. We can, but I just don't think we're outside of God's love. So I like the word unconditional. And to me that keeps that relationship intact so I can always I can always reach out to God mm -hmm. and I'm worthy of always praying and receiving his help so that's a very cool inst and you've got some language here that is not um English it's I assume not that could English be Arabic no that's Arabic yeah it's Arabic Do, uh, does it say anything yeah <laughs> there's like seven characters here Do you want what it says is Laith al Khawaja, which it's kind of a joke, honestly, because when I was in Jordan, uh, well, actually, no. So before I was in Jordan, one of my TAs, shout out to Talal. He's also a Palestinian rapper, Palestinian Jordanian rapper. You should look him up. Um, none of them are going to listen to any of this. None of the rappers I give shout outs to, but whatever. Um, so Talal, we he was my know. TA for Arabic 101. And I remember asking him, you know, what he thought my Arabic name 
should be if I had one, just kind of as a just banter, really. And he said that I looked like Leith. He said that that was <laughs> what Leith means in Arabic is one of the many different ways of naming lion. And I think it's the fact that I'm really blonde. But he, yeah, so Leith was it. And when I got to Jordan, I would kind of jokingly say, if my name is like too hard to pronounce, like just call me Leith. Because Dalton, that's even a lot of native English speakers are like Dalton. Like, what is that? Isn't that like a last name? It is, by the way, which confuses people. But in Jordan, they would just be like, what is, it's not Jake or something easier. And so I would say, you can just call me Leith. And then El Khawaja is actually a common, uh, uh, let me make sure that I, uh, Cir Circassian, is that the, is that the word? Sharkas is the word in Arabic. But there's a group of people from Eastern Europe, kind of of Russian heritage. I'm hoping that I, any Jordanians like listening to this, please correct me. But it's, um, they look Russian and they kind of look like me, basically, just like really, really white, fair skin, blue eyes, blonde. But they're native Jordanian. So they're people of that like heritage that live in Jordan. And and so for me to like speak with a Jordanian accent when I was there in my broken Arabic was just really funny to people. And so they gave like someone gave me that last name. It's a common um, Sharkas awesome. kind of name. And yeah, I just I, thought it was funny to keep it up there. Every time people see it, they'll laugh and be like, do you know what that means? Do you know where I that comes it. from? I love it. It's like an inside joke. <laughs> so when I became listeners and ally, you know, I didn't quite know how many other allies there were out there. And I've recognized at BYU, my wife and I have a couple kids at BYU that there are a lot of allies at BYU. Um, That's true. And actually, it it's and so as I've spent more time with, at BYU and there's a lot of professors that are allies. There's just a lot of mm -hmm. great work being done at BYU mm -hmm. to support LDS LGBTQ members. So tell our listeners what you're wearing on your right oh. wrist and just your journey to become an ally. Mm -hmm. So well, first question. It's a bracelet. It has the rainbow on it. I actually bought it at a Pride festival going on right across the street from the Provo City Center Temple. And that was, I think, three years ago, something. And so I, I was telling you a bit about this before, but I can't recall a time in my life when, again, disclaimer, I've definitely had internalized transphobia, homophobia, and even just maybe benevolent phobia of people of different sexual orientations and, and gender identities. But I really cannot recall a time in my life where I felt that I had to distance myself from people in that community. And I never, it, it also never made sense to me, quite honestly, the way that we taught it in the church. And it's still something that I'm confident saying I really don't agree with, actually, the way that it's taught. And I hope that it could change, but it, it might not. The whole point is that I have had so many friends that I either on first impression or later find out are identify as part of the community and one of those um, labels, I guess, or don't identify, but are somehow um, 
different in their sexual orientation, their expression. And, and that really opened my eyes and just helped me to see that, yeah, you know, there some, I have some really, really good friends and the fact that they're different from like me or what my faith is teaching me has no bearing on that, or at least I don't want it to. And then within my own faith community, and as I've branched out and I've gained as kind of part of my major, but throughout my life is I've gained more friends in different faith communities that are, that are Jewish, that are Muslim, that are um, atheists. Even they, you know, I've had friends come out to me in private because for whatever reason they felt safe and trusted me. And that gave me a real sense of the weight that that carries just how, how much bravery and also how important it is when someone does confide that part of themselves to you in private, it shouldn't be taken for granted. And I think the pain in seeing those who might come out to me, but not feel safe coming out to their own family or the fact that we even have to quote unquote come out there's a funny scene in the film Love, Simon about this, for example. You know, why don't straight people have to come out? Um, I that's That's been painful for me to see as well, where I think there shouldn't have to be some big ceremony. There shouldn't have to be some, there shouldn't have to be big backlash either. It's just, it just is. And so, yeah, that's, that's a bit of my journey. Talk about weight. Um... Now, we've obviously had a lot of LGBTQ people on to firsthand share their weight, but explain that, you know, when you feel the weight that they're carrying, how would you put that into words to help others understand as an ally? I don't know if I really could put it into words, to be honest. It's just what I what I have seen is is a lot of pain, but I also don't want to just focus on that because... <clears throat> it really shouldn't be something that has shame attached to it. I don't, I don't know if I can quantify the the weight, but like shame is a big part of it. And just, again, in my mind, there should not be that. I think it's completely unnecessary. And, and it's, it's like, it's a weight that could totally be done without in and I think that's the whole goal as well and I think that's why pride exists for example is to show that this isn't a weight but this is actually something that should buoy you up this is just a part of your identity and it shouldn't be something that that drags you down and yeah I just I don't know if that's like the best way I can explain it, but that's that's where I'm coming from, and that's where some of my friends are coming from. When you put this bracelet on three years ago that you bought, did you get any negative comments directed at you? Not outrightly negative, but a lot of confusion. I think it's because I'm sure there are negative thoughts that have cropped up when people see it, and I've gotten looks for sure of not discuss, but just like, really? Question mark. And, but people who really know me and really care and maybe are surprised to see that they'll, they might be confused, but they'll at least ask, why are you wearing that? Do you support pride? Do you support this? Are you gay? (laughs) Questions like this. And so it's a conversation starter for sure. And it can or can't be that. I think either way, it's just 
again, a little indication of one, something that I'm, that I care about and something that I'm proud to care about and maybe an indication that I'm a safe space in some way, especially with everything that happened this past semester, I would wear it a lot more often just so if people needed to talk, they knew that they could and that I was actually going to, to listen to them. I love your answer there, Dalton. And I've, in this book I'm writing that I've shared at times with our listeners, it'll be out in September. I do talk about pride and that is a word in the LDS church that has a lot of meanings to a lot of different people. And <laughs> that's true. That's a whole nother context. And I like some of the wording I put in the, the book is some quotes from our church leaders is pride is enmity towards God and other people. And so to me, what you're doing is you are showing the opposite of that. You are showing love towards other people. Pride and, is connection and solidarity. Yeah, so I think my generation, I'm 59, pride brings us to pretty flamboyant parades, perhaps, in metro cities mm -hmm. that some aspects were unsettling to us. But I oh, think yeah. there's a rebranding that's going on with the word pride and the pride flag that are led by a lot of your age group, that it's not a sign of rebellion, it's not a sign of sin, it's a sign of, of decreasing enmity towards a marginalized group of people. As we talk about the definition of pride, I think it's interesting to note that in a lot of languages, there are actually two different words for pride. One for the definition of pride that is arrogance or that enmity toward God that you described, and another that is a completely different meaning, um, but a lot of languages give a separate word to pride as in the feeling of, of being proud of an accomplishment or proud of your child um, in that sense of the word. And I think when we talk about pride for the LGBTQ community, we are talking about that latter definition, that it's um, taking, uh, taking worth from something, worth and value, and um, being... <laughs> happy about that, that it's a, a very positive term and uh, not the former definition that's used to describe the wicked in the scriptures and situations like that. Mm -hmm. For some, it definitely is a sign of rebellion. Though. <laughs> and that's well, honest. <laughs> it is, it is. And, and what you were saying about pride parades as well, I went, this was a year ago, almost exactly that I went to, went to pride festival in Salt Lake, and it would be going on, I think, right now if it weren't for the pandemic. But anyway, I went, and I loved it, and I felt so happy. And I was there supporting. It was more to be there for friends of mine who wanted to experience it, who are part of the community, and just wanted to maybe associate memories of Utah with something else for once and just show, oh, I can be proud and in Utah. <laughs> you know, it's... I don't have to fly to San Francisco or Brighton in England in order to have, or Berlin in Germany to just have these experiences, but I can, I can be with my friends and just make a 45 minute drive up and we can all be together. But of course there are parts of the ceremony, ceremony, like the parade that don't strike me as like the greatest. I mean, you have like uh, fetish rights, for example, which to me, like, yes, there should be destigmatization 
um, around a lot of different things, but I don't think that people who, uh, you know, who have like a leather fetish necessarily are fighting for the same rights as those who are gay and trying to get married. <laughs> I don't see this. I don't see the equivalence there. So I'm with you on that, that there are certain things that I, I don't know, it, it becomes all encompassing. That's the whole thing about the LGBTQ community. I also really love is just that it it's built around acceptance of everyone. And why is your life yeah. better having your LGBTQ friends in your life? Oh man. I mean, it's, that's a good question because I wouldn't say that just them being LGBTQ or queer is what makes my life better. It's more, I know that's not exactly what you mean, but I have just wonderful friends who are queer and who aren't. And, and they're all this, and you just see them as equal. Yeah. And I see their individual contributions. Yeah. But I've definitely gotten really, really close. And I feel like I'm part of a chosen family of a few people who it makes me really sad to see they can't speak with their own parents, their own siblings about this because they're so entrenched in this impression of, of what it means to just be to be bisexual or to be to be lesbian to be gay to be transgender to be intersex to be asexual and that it, it it's it's a privilege to to me to be able to to like be their like their family member in a way that they can talk with and not feel shame talk about and this is an a question that you don't know the answer to, but if there's listeners that aren't really connected to BYU students right now, and they're hearing Dalton talk about his feelings as a BYU student towards LGBTQ, are you like way minority? Are there just a few like you, or do you feel like there's a lot of straight um, BYU students that are, this is a key issue for them? at BYU and they see things kind of the way you do. They just recognize a really good group of people that has a really difficult road. There are a lot more, as you said, allies, student, faculty, or even just people who at least see nuance than I expected. Uh, that being said, it's still definitely a minority because uh, you know, even if we're of a different generation than you, for example, there's still people who like because that doctrine that at least the doctrine in the church hasn't changed uh, completely for a while. There's been a difference in how we've talked about it, but there's not been a difference in the doctrine of marriage is only between a man and a woman. And because that hasn't changed, I think that's just rolled over. And there are lots of people in my same generation who are very set in that ideology as well. And who have even said outrightly to me, you know, I, I do believe that homosexuality is immoral. That doesn't mean I can't still quote unquote love to me. That is conditional love, but yeah, there are, there are a lot of people who are, who are nuanced in their views and 
And, and that's something I'm really grateful for. There, there are definitely more than, than you would think. And I think that's the best thing that I could say. That's my impression too. And even the faculty administrators that, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, my feeling is once you get to know people up front, you know, Brene Brown, it's hard to hate people, you know, move in, paraphrasing that, once you get to know personal stories of LGBTQ or people around the world, you know, your eyes open up and your heart changes. That's certainly my story. Talk about this kind of sensitive subject you mentioned, use the word, one of the things that you know, in the church, we have our doctrine that marriage is between a man and a woman. We have our doctrine not to drink tea or coffee. Um, is it okay to hope that doctrine changes as mm. we continue to live the current doctrine and sustain mm. the current doctrine? Or do you feel like that's crossing a line to hope? And maybe a simple analogy is, I would like to drink coffee and tea, or a simple example is, I would like to drink coffee and tea, but I won't. Mm. because that's our doctrine, but actually hope it changes. Just any thoughts on that on that sort of complicated subject? Mm. That'll definitely ruffle some feathers. Mm. Um, I, I think that's a really good question. And I think, yes, it's okay to, to hope that certain things change, but I also, I know that I don't get what I want you know, my quote unquote agenda. Um, I don't want to use the word agenda actually, because that's that, that carries a lot of baggage to it, especially when it comes to the, the queer community. But I, I know that I don't just get what I want. That's not how the church works and that's not how the world works. And so I'm not going to be unrealistic there. There's definitely a time where I kept on, I think, pushing back and telling people, well, why doesn't this change? You know, why I can still be a member and still completely disagree with this. Why doesn't it change? And I'm more at a point now where I think more important than just hoping that policies change because that's number one, not in our control. And that's not like up to us uh, necessarily. And I think more important is just serving where you're at because that's something that you do have control over. That is something that you can change. Say, I arrive at the pearly gates one day and that policy is still the same, you know, and that doctrine is still the same. Then I don't know exactly what that's going to mean for me, but I know that what I can do now and my mission I feel in life is to just serve, even if it means in the smallest capacity, say I might never have a church calling because of my views uh, or I might never be able to affect the change that I want to, but I can just, I can just be behind the scenes, you know, helping people. And, and that's more genuine at the end of the day as well, because sometimes policy changes or like doctrine changes. Those can be just politically motivated. They can be from outside pressure sometimes. Um, it's much better to, when institutions might fail some people, it's your job to step up. And, and that's an analogy that works for the pandemic going on right now as well, for sure. But just lift where you stand, I think. That's the best analogy. I like, I mean, it's just a very complicated question and a very thoughtful answer, Dalton. And 
I've thought about that question a lot. What's the right boundary for me as a committed Latter-day Saint? Mm -hmm. And I've sort of, this is what I've written in the book, is I think it's okay to hope something changes, like coffee and tea, for example. That's kind of a benign one that doesn't emotionally activate a lot of people, like potentially a change around our policy or doctrine on on marriage. Mm-hmm. People were raging about that a year ago too. Like, they're going to change the word of wisdom. Well, they like, did, you're right. No, they they're didn't. not. <laughs> and so I think it's probably okay to hope. It's For me, my boundary is if I start campaigning or advocating or organizing a movement um, to affect mm-hmm. change. Um, and I just have decided I don't sit on the general councils of the church. I don't have stewardship or standing for the church. I don't, at the end of the day, know God's will for his church. Right. Who can know the mind of God? And so I do what you do is I decided that I can influence things in my circle largely by sitting with people in their pain, Mm -hmm. like you're doing and Shelby's doing and others that are doing listeners and saying, this is where I can serve and and Mm -hmm. asking Heavenly Father in Christ, how can I help? people that have harder roads. So that's the way I've navigated that really complicated space. I do I do recognize historically our doctrine has changed. I think it, the restoration is ongoing, so it could change. Mm-hmm. I think it's sort of the boundary I've put for myself is I don't try to figure out if it is going to change or advocate for it to change. Mm-hmm. I recognize um, it's just a difficult road for LGBTQ people. So they step away. I'm just going to support them in their journey mm-hmm. and not make them the poster boy for what's wrong in society. Just recognize <laughs> they have a really hard road and they need our love and support. Um, sort of how they, however they feel impressed to make their way in life. Are you okay with that? Yeah. If I may, with that question about hoping for change in the church, in my mind, I always associate hope with trust. And there, um, since Dalton and I both study Arabic, <laughs> the way that many people express the thought, hopefully, is to say, inshallah, or God willing. And one thing that helps me to feel like I'm doing okay on the balance with hoping for change, but not trying to push in ways that I shouldn't, is, is having trust that mm-hmm. I hope that things can change because I trust in an all-loving God who at the end of the day will make things loving and fair for everyone. And what that timeline is exactly, I don't know, but I want to be that safe space for other people. And I want to trust that we are becoming more loving as a society, even if it's discouraging at times. Love that. Mm -hmm. Really love that. That's what I love about what you're doing and what Shelby does is to be in circles, whether it's on your podcasts or in the MTC and be that force for uh, just unconditional love in really small spaces, because that way, number one, it, it doesn't become just a campaign that spirals out of your control and, you know, maybe takes on a life of its own that you didn't intend. But number two, it's also, I think, just more genuine And no one can really question your intention. I mean, people can question your intentions, whatever, but I think your intentions, my intentions can be a lot more pure when I am doing it just for another friend in, in my, in my circle, rather than just 
trying to campaign on social media. And I definitely am outspoken on social media about some of these things, but the real change is, yeah, in just those those small spaces. I love that. And I love focusing on things I can control. I know my own anxiety and my own mental health is better when I focus on things that I can control and things that are outside of my control or influence. I try to just like the pandemic is a good example of that. There's so oh, much. Of- All things testify of the pandemic right now. <laughs> um, unfortunately, there's actually, if I may really quick, while we're still on topic of faith, there's, there's scripture that I, in my study recently has actually helped me to focus not just my study, but my everyday efforts and what is my intent. And to go back to your question as someone who is questioning, but is still in the church. Um, and it is in, it's in, Oh, I was in Moroni. It's Mosiah eight. And so as I've been studying the book of Mormon in particular, I've been asking you know, like what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, what are those things that maybe I can chip away at in my faith that are either not true or not healthy for me, or maybe both. And in, in Mosiah 8, it's a conversation between Ammon and I think is it King King Limhi? Limhi? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're talking about prophets and seers. And this is also a question I've had is like, okay, what exactly is the role of a prophet? If they can be human sometimes, but speak the word of God sometimes, then how do we parse those things? And in verse 18, when they're talking about what is a prophet and what is a seer really stuck out to me like never before. And it says, thus God has provided a means that man through faith might work mighty miracles. Therefore, he becometh a great benefit to his fellow beings. I love how it says fellow beings and not fellow men, first of all, but maybe that's just that's PC of me to, to think. But I love that that idea of not being so caught up all the time in just what is absolute truth, what is eternal truth, what is doctrine, what is not, what is policy, what is right, what is wrong, but really just even the things that you listen to that are hard or the things you read that are, are hard. What is the benefit that number one, I can get out of it. Okay. What can I do with this? And then how can I become a benefit to others? I think that's what matters the most at the end of the day is just not focusing on being right. You know, how can I be right? But just how can I add value? How can I be of benefit to my fellow beings? And that has really started to transform the way that I see my membership and my my friendship, all these things. I love that because it's sort of bringing the scriptures to life for you within your personal circle of influence mm-hmm. and giving you ideas on how to do that better. Trying, yeah. Talk about, um, Dalton, just we talked about ahead of time, when you graduate, what you'd like to do. Is LGBTQ kind of done once BYU is done, or is this something you want to continue to focus on um, post-BYU? This is the intersection of just this and what I care about so much, and also my major, and the fact that ever since I started this major, I knew that I wanted to to go there. And I've had the opportunity to to spend time in the Middle East and in the region and make friends there, so many friends there, and I loved it. 
And I also feel like I can affect a lot more change and be of benefit, as I was saying, by being on site than just far removed. And so I want to do something, and I don't know exactly what it's going to be yet, but I want to do something that helps me to fight for minority rights, but uh, most especially helps me to advance LGBTQ rights in the Middle East, because in a lot of ways, it's the same battle all over the world, but there are some very unique challenges that um, people in that community face in the region. And I feel like the skills that I've been learning and my desire to empathize with other people can really be put to good use and I can be most effective that way. That's a unique life mission to bring these two parts of your life together, your love of the Middle East, your academic training, and your personal ministry with LGBTQ and all the things that you're learning and your lifelong awareness and sensitivity to bring that to then say, career-wise, I want to go to the Middle East. And actually, the Middle East is the most complicated political space from what I know on the planet. And this is the most complicated social issue, if that's the right vocabulary, use LGBTQ, mm -hmm. and you are proactively choosing <laughs> to be in that it's space yeah. geographically and in every way. Yeah. I mean, uh, you're right. It's so complicated, but I hope that I can somehow demonstrate that the solutions, the solutions are actually also very complicated, but I think the attitude is very simple where it's like, look, we don't have to just define ourselves by our religion. We don't have to just define ourselves by our race, by our nationality. Um, and also just not seeing, you know, queerness, um, being uh, transgender, being uh, gay, bisexual, et cetera, is not a mental illness. That's still very much how it's treated in... The Middle East and mental health as a general topic is not really open to discussion in most of the Middle East either. I've made some good friends who are starting to open up that discussion from where they're at, whether they're in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Palestine, in Algeria, Morocco, etc. And that's really encouraging for me to see. And I recognize that as a, yes, I'm going to say it, as a white cisgender male, you know, and someone who's a little more economically privileged than than many, and I'm in the top 0.01% in terms of my education and the opportunities I've been given. I don't want to just, when I say I want to like advocate, I don't mean that I want to insert myself into the narrative, but I just want to do my best to lift up voices that, uh, that might need it. Because on one hand, it's not my job. Well, on one hand, I want people that are actually there that are living in those locations, in those societies, in those neighborhoods to be the ones to, to do the work because it's, it's not my place to just be a white savior and come in and fix the Middle East, which is what a lot of my family are like, oh, so you're going to fix the Middle East? I'm like, no. How many of my demographic have ever done that? Um, but it's, it's, um, it's also not just people in minorities, minority groups' responsibility to carry the full burden of having to explain to everyone. Uh, so really, I'm, I'm going to do a lot more listening and observing in that sphere, kind of like you're doing. Um, but yeah, I feel like my, 
my unique background and the skills that I've been given aren't aren't coincidence. And I want to really, really specialize in that in that kind of empathy. There are things in your patriarchal blessings. You sometimes there's not actually words that say go serve in the Middle East, but there's just mm. in, there's just sort of impressions or general language there that sort of gives you context. Any of that? Yeah, I mean, it's always been really fascinating to me what my patriarchal blessing says about that. But um, the only, I guess the most specific it ever gets is saying that the work that you do will bring joy to yourself and to others, and it'll help lift up um, others' spirits. And it's so funny because it speaks about my mission, but I've learned that that you know, a patriarchal blessing is so all encompassing. It's, it's all of life. It's not just mortality, but it's pre-earth and it's, it's life after this life, after this mortal life. And it's, it talks about my mission. And I thought, why is there such a big paragraph just talking about my mission when it's only two years, but I realized that it's, it's speaking about this thing as well. And, and it was interesting that it said, you will be blessed with uh, the gift of tongue to speak words of comfort to people who need to hear it. I'm really big into learning languages. And so I was kind of frustrated when I didn't get called to learn a new language <laughs> on my mission. I mean, kind of like South London dialect, but it wasn't what I was hoping. And I, I've just thought about that a lot as well. That's what my spiritual gift is, is meant to be in relation to my life mission, not just my my LDS mission for a period of two years, like I had. I hope some of you are listening to this that are straight allies saying some of the things that Dalton is sharing helps me to know how to do this. Um, it's a complicated space for those of you that are in it. Um, some of you are listening are parents of LGBTQ or just allies in our church trying to figure out how to do this. But I love the framework you're creating for your own ministry, Dalton. There was some tone things. I wrote down some words that are the tone, and you don't you don't want me to praise you in this podcast because you don't want to lift your voice above our LGBTQ, but insert into the narrative. That's sort of where the story becomes about you, mm-hmm. and you don't want it to. You don't want to be the white savior, mm-hmm. and you don't want and you want to lift their voices. So those are when I stepped in those spaces. Those phrases didn't mean anything to me. And so I'm lifting your voice here, and we're both trying to lift LGBTQ, but this what gives me hope for the future is somebody like you and Shelby that feel an impression to be in this space, even um, for you, Dalton, for your career, and to walk into the middle of Palestine and walk in the middle of LGBTQ in that geographic area and say, this is where I want to be. And it just gives me hope for the future and an insight into what I, I just have so much hope when I see our younger LDS members and their worldview and their personal missions and their feelings about Christ's ministry to go to the very most marginalized and help them feel hope and healing and their love. And so thank you for what you're doing. No, thanks. Um, and I hope you feel all of our hands on your back saying you can do this. Um, it's. I sometimes wish I could just have your older self on the podcast in 30 years say this is what happened. Mm. And I think what you want will happen is going to happen not exactly the way you 
it, but it, it will happen. And what you're going to do will be a big part of your life. Shelby, do you have any more thoughts you want to add? I do. Thinking of lifting others' voices, I think sometimes we think about, oh, just this one little voice won't make that big of a difference. But there was a study I was reading recently about various political issues and whether discussion of that issue with somebody else was likely to make someone change their mind on that particular topic. And the study found that just information about the topic very rarely <laughs> changed people's minds. But having a personal encounter with somebody who had a personal experience with that did a lot more to change people's minds and hearts about whatever the issue was. And there's a quote from Marjorie Pay Hinckley. She says, there isn't a person you wouldn't love if you could read their story. And I think that if anyone could really connect with somebody from the LGBTQ community or from any other minority group and understand them, that is what will create true change. Mm -hmm. I love that, Shelby. Uh, it's so simple. Everybody can do what you just said. Mm -hmm. It's true. Luckily, Shelby and I have also been able to work um, at different points with an organization called Their Story is Our Story, which uh, that's the whole idea. It's specifically for refugee voices and displaced people. But it's true. It's a very simple uh, fact that just, for example, if you want to talk about the refugee, quote unquote, the refugee crisis, which is really a billion different crises, it's, um, it's hardly going to change people's minds to just hear um, Patrick Stewart in a YouTube ad say, hey, did you know that there are 70 million people who are displaced from their homes as much as that should galvanize people, it's it really changes people's perspective when you just get to sit down and talk with someone who doesn't identify just as a refugee. That's not what defines them, but that's what they've been forced into. And and you hear so much more about you know there's about their story. That's the point. So I love that. Segment two, our listeners, is um, talking about faith. A lot of um, people that step in this space of becoming an ally just recognize that they have a feeling that our church is not where we need to be. I sometimes call it a 40-chapter book, that the church's relation with its LGBTQ members is like a 40-chapter book, and we're somewhere not where chapter 40 is. And I've always said chapter 40 is where straight and LGBTQ people are having the same wonderful positive experience of the church is equally the balm of Gilead and a mother learning that she's a gay child has no fear. It, she has just as much hope for that gay kid as a straight kid. That to me is what chapter 40 is. And I haven't, I don't know if that then means our doctrine changes. It's back to that earlier discussion. I just don't know. I leave that to our leaders. Do I sing sustain and support? And I leave that to God. I don't know God's will, but a lot of people just feel like, and especially LGBTQ people that are in the space that directly know this, they just feel there's missing chapters. Mm -hmm. And so for allies and LGBT, that can generate a faith crisis where you recognize there's something missing here. And, 
And just so that's kind of a setup to for you to introduce to our listeners, Dalton, just where you are on your faith with our church. Mm. Well, it's a uh, it's an ongoing story. I mean, to, I'm I'm probably somewhere in like chapter. I hope I'm just in like chapter five <laughs> of of that story for myself. Um, but there has just been a lot of intersecting factors and experiences that have caused me to, I think, just be more honest as to where I am and faith or lack of faith, either way, it should be honest. You you should never pretend to faith and you should never just pretend to not believe for someone else's, I don't know, just to satisfy someone else. And so what along those lines, what I say to people who I feel safe uh, saying this to is I don't feel truthful like 100% honest saying, oh, but I plan on staying in the church, so don't worry. But I also don't feel truthful saying I plan on leaving. I'm just, I'm not planning either way. I'm just trying to take it day by day. And that's been the best medicine for me, honestly. I felt like when people would ask me the same question, Oftentimes, I would respond almost as a knee-jerk reaction, or I'd make sure to insert a little, a little disclaimer saying, "Oh, but don't worry, I'm staying in the church." And I just, I didn't feel that I was always being honest when I said that because, um, it, it's it's not a journey that I'm making only as long as I end up in a certain destination. It's I'm kind of trying to figure out what the destination even is, and. I would say that I am doing my part to live uh, a good um, life of integrity in public and in private. And I am, I haven't always, that's for sure. And I've been studying a lot in the scriptures and I try to listen to conference, even if that means, as we were talking earlier about setting appropriate boundaries, because sometimes conference can just be really uh, painful to, to listen to, quite honestly. But I'm doing my part. And it's not just about the destination, but it's about what am I doing daily to uh, to progress at the end of the day. And And I really have felt a lot of spiritual guidance in that way. Whatever my faith is defined as, whatever life that takes on, whatever people want to label it as, at the end of the day, I know that I will always be a spiritual person because I know that's part of who I am. And I'm continually, I'm seeking for experiences more than just just study. Uh, Study has been really important to me, but experience is the most important and and there are anchoring experiences that still happen all the time. And I would say the most important things that uh, the most important reasons as to why I'm still in the church are the potential of priesthood power and having seen evidence of that working in my life and in others' lives. And that's not something that I want to just throw out the window. It's it's a really big deal for anyone to be able to, to have access to that power. Uh, and it's something that I take for granted for sure. 
I'd say that's a big one. Um, also just, I don't know the, the, again, that, that whole idea of like lift where I stand, you know, if, if I can stay and I can somehow like serve better at, with the church as a vessel, then it's worth it. Cause that's what the church should be at the end of the day. It's, it's just a vessel for, uh, for good. And if it enhances my ability to serve and to do good, then great. But if it holds me back in any way, then I definitely would, would check myself on that. It's such an honest answer, you know, full of integrity and honesty. What, as you've opened up to family or friends, what's some of the best advice you've gotten? Hmm. I think... About staying in the church, you mean? Or just or, managing this faith journey you're on or whatever. Right. Just as you've opened up to people, I'm sure you've had a range of advice, some that felt oh, more helpful yeah, and some that felt less helpful. Just It's kind of helping our listeners that may have people in their circle that are kind of in your space wanting to say something that's helpful. So we were talking about faith deconstruction yeah. earlier, and that's uh, kind of simplistic, but it's the best thing that I can describe what I'm going through as right now. And when I when I talked with my parents about it, my mother in particular, because she's a wordsmith, literally, she she told me, just remember that every kind of deconstruction is ultimately a reconstruction. And that as you're breaking certain things down or chipping away at I don't know, getting rid of the dross, you know, that, that shouldn't be there. You are hopefully building something better. And that's what I'm aiming to do at the end of the day. I'm not aiming to tear myself down, tear my family down, tear friends down. I think anyone who has that intent, I think that whether it's to stay in the church or to get out of the church, if your intent is to somehow tear someone else down, that's the problem. It's that's the biggest problem. And so I am trying to, to reconstruct, not just deconstruct. I'm hoping that weak things in my life can be broken down so that stronger things can be built up in their stead. So I love that's a, that. It's a really good piece of advice that my mom gave. I have a lot of respect for your mom and I love that advice because it's very positive in nature. Mm -hmm. And I love that you're trying not to sort of influence other people one way or another in your personal journey. Mm -hmm. And this is Dalton's personal journey. I do love the the idea of re deconstruction, reconstruction. As I've shared with our listeners, I did some of that mm -hmm. um, as part of my journey five years ago to stay in the church. I was able to stay in the church, but I certainly have more understanding for people that deconstruct sort of what is, you know, what is... Ultimately, I'm going to, you know, reconstruct here and what is my foundation going to be? And priesthood's a big part of that. Priesthood mm -hmm. and the Book of Mormon and, you know, our understanding of the plan of salvation. I really believe in this pre-earth life, post-earth life, and just mm -hmm. our increased understanding of the plan of salvation. And kind of like Jared Halverson said on a podcast earlier, our theology has room for other theology. Our umbrella is big enough. It actually has an umbrella that covers other theologies mm -hmm. and yeah. makes space so true. within our people. And that's that. really a, it was a, I've thought about that from his podcast and 
It was very insightful and maybe a suggestion. I'm not sure this is 100% accurate because I don't know every other theology that it's it's harder for other theologies to find space for ours mm-hmm. within their theology. But there is an umbrella within our, over ours when you think of the totality of the plan of salvation. Yeah. It's true. Don't you think it's so much better to look at other faiths or honestly, again, I have to mention this, people who have no quote unquote faith, but you know, are non-believing or agnostic, there is so much to be gained from every school of thought. I really do believe that. And I've seen that some of that, some of the most, and this has given me pause sometimes, but some of the most fruitful, genuine and faith building conversations that I've had before my mission, during, after my mission, or with people who didn't pretend to any faith. They didn't, they were, they would identify as atheists or agnostic. And I think it's because just this really curious questioning attitude. And I think that's punished too often when it should be rewarded. And yeah, so I, I totally agree <laughs> with everything you just I said. I love that. And I sort of like this idea that if we really own our doctrine, that then we're more at peace with people in other faiths and the good in other mm-hmm. faiths and people being happy in other faiths and even more at peace if someone needs to step away from our faith mm-hmm. for whatever reason, that if we really own our doctrine and these loving heavenly parents and this long view of the plan of salvation, um, then I think it just gives me I have more peace with the rest of mankind where they are and just try to see good where everybody is mm-hmm. um, versus triggered by a happy atheist that has great ideas. And I'm thinking, wait a second, my narrative says, you know, my simple narrative is everybody that's atheist is unhappy and bitter and not a good person. And right. it's just not true. And and because of that, and, and, you know, some people will probably question, oh, wait, why are you doing this? But they can. I follow people. I follow pages on social media, such as Lifestyles After Mormonism, such as Faith to the Faithless, which is a UK-based group around people who are experiencing trauma from religion, who leave religious contexts. Most, I believe, are ex-Muslim, but there's still so much wisdom that I've found in what people believe. I think it's, it's, it's all about being really critical of the things that are unhealthy to you and and realizing it's totally okay to to take those things out of your life and set those boundaries because if religion is not you know benefiting and making you grow if it's just inhibiting you then then it's it's either being taught wrong or you're or you're seeing it wrong or it's being interpreted wrong all these different things so i've gotten a lot of wisdom in fact there was another I think it was just like two weeks ago that I happened to see uh, Lifestyles After Mormonism published an Instagram poll saying, how has your life been benefited from leaving the church? And there were all these answers. Some of them I thought were a little petty. I'm not going to lie. Someone said, well, I don't have to fast anymore. And I thought, well, that's kind of privileged. <laughs> you know. And I think fasting is a beautiful thing that, uh, that does work. But there were others that people were saying, I feel less shame about my body. I feel less shame about my identity. I feel 
and this is people, these are people that are in or like out of the LGBTQ community, people that say that I feel less shame, I feel all of this increase in confidence, I feel an increase in responsibility, I don't just have to wait for a leader to tell me something. And, and I was looking and I was thinking, my honest question was, okay, those are all things that I want in my life. Every single one of those things I just named. Could I possibly obtain those things without having to do something dramatic like leave the church and leave my faith? Could I have those, not now because they don't come overnight, but could I have them as a member? And like even better, if I could have them as a member, could I somehow, again, not to lift myself up, but could I provide some hope to someone else who thinks, okay, do I have to leave the church in order to feel this peace? Or can I do something along the lines of like what Dalton is doing where he's able to honestly have these things, but, um, but not like have to leave because leaving it, leaving the church, people have the wrong idea of it. Sometimes they think it's taking the easy route and it's really not the things that I read from people who have left are really heart wrenching. Granted, a lot of them find that greater peace and that's why they share their experience, but they'll say that it's like you're leaving your tribe behind. You're leaving, you're cutting off all these ties. And there are things that people do miss about certain aspects of the church and things. And, and so you can't, it can't be, it can't be oversimplified that way. It's a really painful, stretching, grueling process to stay in or out of the church, I think, to some degree. So it's a great segment. Shelby, do you have anything to add about faith before we go to mental health? I, I have had a two times in my life when I went through pretty significant faith crises. And I just want to add um, my experience of that. It is a very tormented process and it should not be oversimplified. I have, landed in the church and feel a lot of peace where I am. And the big story of how I got here is probably one for another day, but, but I just want people who are dealing with that in any way to feel that they do have a place where they can be heard and safe and that, that they can take time to make that decision and to sort through any any difficult experiences that are contributing to that and and i hope that that people can that the church can become a safe place for people to experience um peace for people of all backgrounds and contexts thanks for being honest with your own journey mm-hmm. respect and you're right we do need to do a whole podcast with shelby and I sense you have a lot to offer our listeners on blog on blogs. So, you know, good. Talk about your mental health, emotional health, whatever vocabulary you want to use Dalton. Mm -hmm. So the way that this ties in to kind of pivot from faith to mental health, the way that, because they are really strongly connected the way that they've, um, the way that they have been connected is when I served my mission in England, which was a wonderful, amazing, and 
foundation building experience in terms of my spirituality and the relationships that I developed. I, there was, and, and I, again, I want to like speak highly of my mission, the, the presiding couple, like my mission president and the spouse. There were so many great things that they did that helped my testimony to grow. However, what was really difficult and where the cognitive dissonance comes in is that we did not talk about or treat mental health the right way at all, at all. It was, it was often portrayed as a lack of faith, and it was almost talked about as if it were a myth, you know, that just mental health is not, is, it does not function the same way that physical health does. You know, somehow your mental health is connected to your faith, and your physical health, you actually do things to, to treat yourself. And... That's pretty powerful what you just said. Say that again. Well, I think that at least in my experience on my mission, mental health was treated as connected to how strong or weak your faith was, but physical health was talked about in terms of you need to do things to treat it. And, and I just, I remember seeing in myself a little bit at the beginning of my mission, but mostly at the very end, the last six, like four and a half to six months of my mission, because I'd become so committed and we had created this culture of exact obedience, quote unquote, and absolute accountability and, you know, adding new rules that were unnecessary. Uh, it brought out these perfectionist tendencies in myself that have always been there. It just augmented them. And, and I remember treating that as, you know, it was just a weakness in faith. And so I would try to just read the scriptures harder <laughs> if that can even be done. Or I tried to uh, pray harder and I would try to talk to more people and, just noticed it really wasn't healthy for me. And I had a lot of different kinds of breakdowns as a result. I'm really grateful for the companions I had because they, they always were there for me and always coached me through it. Every single one was understanding in some way. But it wasn't until a year after my mission, when I got off my mission, that I realized that I had developed and been trying to actually hold on to habits that were not healthy. To they were just weren't conducive to good mental health for me, and a lot of them were connected to faith practices and uh, just routines and and stuff like that, and that really hurt, and that made me angry. You know, I. Well, I thought that I was being so faithful and so committed, and I just doubled down on that. But I feel like by doubling down on it, I actually hurt myself more than I helped myself, and that was really sad for me. And I feel like I, I have now, and I didn't really have this as a quote-unquote disorder before, before my mission, but I ended up developing generalized anxiety disorder, and I became more depressed and I got diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And then even later, as, as recently as this February, just before everything went down with COVID-19 in Utah, 
I got diagnosed with ADHD and part of the diagnosis said this person has exhibited these sorts of symptoms since the age of 12 or maybe even before. And that was both extremely liberating and really painful at the same time. Because when I went into, so I went to my psychiatrist and they just brought up I was just there to get better medication for depression and anxiety because I had a really bad experience in the fall with, uh, with medicine that actually um, wrecked me. <laughs> medicine is just trial and error, and that's mental health as well. But I ended up, I went to the psychiatrist to get better medication, and they brought up, do you have ADHD? Just came out of the blue. And I said, uh, I don't think... So why? And they said, well, because untreated ADHD has a strong correlation with uh, depression. And that just blew my mind for a second. And, he, and they said, well, we could take a test right now and it could give me a pretty good idea. It's like a 95% accuracy rate. And so I took a, you know, those surveys you take sometimes that are just like all it's, what is it? It's like never, sometimes, often, always. And I was answering almost every single one of the, like a 60 question survey. I was saying always. And that was my honest answer. And that was freaking me out for a second. I thought, wait, th- this is all super accurate. Why am I answering always to this? I thought I didn't have ADHD. So I thought I'd, I thought I had it when I was in high school in Singapore I thought I was exhibiting symptoms. I went to the school psychologist and we took some sort of test and they said, no, you don't have it. And that confused me. And from then on, I myself and like my teachers and sometimes even my family members would kind of be hard on me and just say, no, you don't have ADHD. Don't look for excuses. You just need better discipline. And that's what made college was really hard. Uh, It's been hard for that reason because I've always, I'm still trying to take away that attitude of, you're just not doing well enough because you're not disciplined enough. So like be more disciplined, have better habits, have better study habits, have better sleep habits, all these things. And so that's what it was for a while. Then I took this test and then I took an aural and like visual uh, and just like a kind of a reaction time tests. And that combined with the survey said, yeah, you definitely have ADHD. And, and, for me, it was just kind of mind blowing because I didn't know that that could be connected. Can you tell what that is for our listeners who don't attention know? deficit hyperactive disorder. Okay, hyperactivity disorder, and and they said the reason why this has a strong correlation with depression is because things just keep on not working out no matter what you try. You try to focus, you try to be disciplined, but it just doesn't work, and so you're harder on yourself and you get depressed. And that is how I've always felt. Um, so it was somewhat empowering for me to, to, to realize that I've gotten this far with this problem, not treating it properly. I'm still figuring out how to really treat it, but it, it's, it's, it's helped me a lot to see that I'm not just like a con- collection of diagnoses and like, oh, you have one, two, three. They also said something about OCD, but <laughs> I um these are all connected in some way with the kind of personality I have. And there are solutions to these and knowing the diagnoses just helps me know what 
better solutions there are rather than just, um, I don't know, trying things that, that aren't effective. Thanks for sharing that. And I think a lot of our listeners are saying that sounds like me. Are there parts of our culture that add to the to your emotional load given your diagnosis? Parts of the church culture that yeah, like to... that perfect perfection culture mm-hmm. in England and just other parts of the culture that add to your burden. Um or that are unhealthy for you, or is it separate from bit. our church? I mean, we talked a bit about scrupulosity before, and if I'm not mistaken, from what I understood, the idea of scrupulosity is that you, in order to feel this burden lifted, in order to feel clean, in order to feel like you're being righteous, you are confessing constantly. Right, exactly. And that's something that I still do. And that's something that I've done a lot of. And I feel like I can't have this burden lifted until I confess. And... You know, that's not just an idea in the church. That's also in the Catholic church. That's also in um, in the Jehovah, Jehovah's Witness community mm-hmm. as well in a much more public way. And so, you know, that there are things that come to my mind. For example, where it says in the Book of Mormon, I think it might be in, in Jacob, where he talks about having a firm mind. And with the... Th- some of the issues that I have, I feel like I have anything but a firm mind. I feel like it's really just a pinball machine and it's all over the place often. And some of it I'm sure is manifested in this podcast. <laughs> um, it's really hard uh, to try and strive for that. Um, but I think that goes for just about everyone. And then of course there's the verse, I want to say it's doctrine and covenants. Is it 93 one or somewhere where it says, if you, confess your sins and forsake them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You, yeah, you forsake, confess, obey my voice, like keep my commandments, then you will receive forgiveness, something like that. And so like confession, and when we teach on a mission, for example, confession is an integral part of repentance. And there honestly are things that I have done, mistakes that I've made that I don't want to have to confess, that I don't want to have to talk about. Uh, I've been really blessed to have understanding family, but also ecclesiastical leaders uh, who, when I have confessed certain things, I feel like miraculously I've been able to find healing Good, rather than have to keep it in the dark so very much. And I recognize that that is a privilege. You know, there, there really is this idea of Bishop roulette at, at BYU where depending on who you talk to, who you might confess certain things to, or if you're in the LGBTQ community, if you come out to certain ecclesiastical leader, you can get very different, very different responses that are supposed to be doctrinally based. And, And so, yeah, confession is just a difficult idea. And I feel like, well, I better err on the safe side and just confess constantly. So if I'm keeping things secret, that's a sin. So yeah, that's factored into it. I like just your your journey with your emotional health, Dalton. And I, as I've said on the podcast, I've seen, I don't know as much of this space as you do. I mean, so I know enough. I've seen a therapist twice in my life once while I was a singles word bishop. And so I'm, I'm glad 
um, to be just enough in this space to be able to sort of walk in that desert a little bit with you. But I think, you know, I would love to invite God on the podcast right now and have him comment on why. Oh, you better invite him for someone better than me. (laughs) There's so many better reasons. And have him comment. And have, because I think he'd have an answer for this question. Mm. Why does Dalton, why is Dalton having a journey with his mental health? Mm-hmm. And I think Heavenly Father would say this is part of his life mission. And there will be paydays that are possible in your ministry to help others that are possible because this is part of your journey. And this won't in any way mute your life mission um, or hold you back. It won't hold you back as a husband and as a father and how you serve in the church and your life mission outside of an LDS tools calling but I think it'll enable it. And mm-hmm. I think you hitting it head on and taking the shame about it by talking about it and just sort of owning it and helping other and de-shaming it and just saying, this is part of who I am mm-hmm. is really remarkable and very, very healthy. So I, it's complicated and there's multiple facets of it, but I think it's just part of your life mission. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it makes you damaged goods or broken I just think it's part of who you are and and part of who you're meant to be. To be I think you'll have paydays as a father and as a husband because you just know this world. Mm. Um so that's my thought on that. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I just Yeah, it it is so complicated to know the relationship between faith and your physical health, sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, exercise, medicine, and diet, all of these different things, how they factor into to mental health. The fact is that they're all connected and we shouldn't act like they they aren't because they, they really are. And there are some days where I have to push myself and I hate it. Uh, there are days where I just have to be kind to myself for not reaching my expectations and recognize that I don't know. There's there there's plenty of room to to mess up. And actually in relation to like how faith and mental health like have connected if you don't mind I'm going to share a quote from Shelby's dad. So she we were talking about who's a psychologist I believe. Yes. And really knows what he's talking about. But that should be another podcast. You know what? Let's call him up. But I think one of my favorite things that I've heard him say is agency is so important that it, in fact, it's more important than just getting it right, or at least getting it right the first time, something along those, something along those lines. And so I think just trying, continually trying, rather than agonizing over whether or not it's right or wrong, it's true or false, is so much more important. There's, if there's anything that I did learn as a life lesson from my mission. And I, I forget it all the time, but it really is something that I learned from my mission experience. It's that uh, all things work together for those who love God. And that as long as that's where your heart and your intent is, and you're being honest with that, then you can't really go wrong permanently. And, and and the miracle of Jesus Christ and everything that he does is 
consecrate those efforts for your gain and not to your detriment at the end of the day. Love that. I love you being kind to Dalton at times and saying, this is just the best <laughs> I can do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I can definitely uh, do it more. I've recognized that some personalities I'm not clinically trained that seem to be the most focused on doing the right thing often struggle the most because they're the hardest on themselves. The toxic perfectionism, the perfect obedience because they want to do what's right, then that cycles in a negative way for them because mm-hmm. they care so much about doing the right thing and scrupulosity is part of that. Shelby, you teach at the MTC. Your dad's a psychologist. You have great insights into this from your own journey and from your family's story. What if you could talk to everybody that's starting a mission right now (laughs) and somehow could turn in, which Dalton's giving you the thumbs up. I think he kind of thinks that would be a good thing given your skill set. What would you sort of teach missionaries going out to make sure they don't get in this cycle of sort of feeling like they can never be good enough? That's something that I really love addressing with every district of missionaries that I get to teach. Growing up with my father and my mom as well is always part of the discussion. Not talking about mental health was never an option. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) And I have also had several people very close to me who have, whose mental health has been damaged by, um, mission cultures that were unhealthy and I I love being able to try to set the culture with missionaries before they go out so that they can know um, know what is healthy and know to take care of themselves and know that that's not a weakness but part of God's plan (laughs) This week, actually, I was able to teach some missionaries and one of them brought up the quote about how obedience brings success and exact obedience brings miracles. And I remember hearing that quote when I was in the MTC and thinking, eh, maybe not. (laughs) Close quote. (laughs) And um, I've seen how, how that... That idea is born of good intentions, born of the idea that, you know, we should be doing everything in our power to follow God and to bless other people and to be um, be God's hands as literally as we can be as missionaries because we are representatives of Jesus Christ and we should live up to that. And And so many missionaries and people trying to do that hold themselves to an impossible standard that that then tears them apart. And I would like to change our, our take on that quote, because it is a quote from a prophet and, um, and it has value, but I want us to think that exact obedience does not mean perfect obedience. It's not about checking every single box, but about having exact intentions, really seeking God's ideas on what you should do and exactly trying and exactly being exactly as patient with ourselves as we would be with 
investigators or church members or anybody else that we come in contact with. And exactly as patient with ourselves and our weaknesses as we know Jesus Christ would be with, uh, with ourselves and with anybody that he met. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the biggest things that we can do with mental health is simply to treat ourselves like we would treat others. I love that. I love, again, it's doable. It's simple. It's powerful. I really agree with what you said. Mm. I think we're coming to the end just because we need to stop in this podcast. Um, you that are at the gym, you've been working out for 80 minutes now <laughs> <laughs> or been on a long run or a long drive. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I want to read a quote. I read this quote quite a bit. Um, and some of you that are li- regular listeners know it. It's by Henry Noren, a Catholic priest. And this is Shelby and Dalton. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the, about, wounded by the suffering about which he or speak, she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. And I think we're all wounded. I think... You know, this is kind of a vulnerable, honest podcast. I try to be pretty open and vulnerable, and our these two guests today are great at that. But I think we're all a little wounded, and I think when we're honest with that, we're able to then authentically connect with others, and then we become the healers. So your journey with your mental health, Dalton, I think gives you an increased measure of empathy and compassion for LGBTQ mm-hmm. and for other marginalized people, and obviously people with emotional health and same with you, Shelby, if you shared some of your story. And so I think that's part of our life mission is to be vulnerable and authentic and sort of help each other. And so I look at your generation being more honest with who you are and and not sort of living this, this outward appearance of, you know, that we need to live to sort of like feel like we're checking all the boxes and being more honest and vulnerable, I think is a sign of maturity and a sign of just better sustainability. So thank you for that example. Um, Let's just, any final thoughts? Shelby, do you have any final thoughts? And we'll give Dalton a final word. Uh Uh-oh. Should we? (laughs) (laughs) I think my, my biggest thought would just be that for everyone listening, I hope people who are who are allies or not allies yet or who have had experiences with mental health issues or who have not, that everyone would take the time to find someone and listen to them. Any any person who has a personal experience with any of these issues or other ones can add value to somebody's life if they're given the opportunity to be heard. That's what I hope that people can take away and grow in compassion through that. Thank you, Shelby. Dalton, any final thoughts for our listeners? I think just going off the same, ah, there are so many different things I could say, but going off of the same message, I... Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Going off of the same message, I would say, um, first of all, I actually want to thank you personally for 
having this format, it really feels like a safe and sacred space. And, and the fact that you actually put the effort in to use just the right words sometimes, like actually using specific words like transphobia or, uh, or using the language of the community really does mean more than people can realize. Thank you. People can really, I don't know, I feel like there's so many people that are upset when they're asked to use the right pronouns or asked to speak about things a certain way. People get so tied up and say, you're infringing on you know my freedom of speech. And I really don't want it to be political, what I say, but in just having the freedom to speak does not mean always speaking. And it doesn't mean that you just use it irresponsibly, but it means knowing when to sometimes just shut up and listen, <laughs> just be, just be willing to, to listen to someone else. And I think that's, that's really meaningful. And yeah, I, I agree with what both of you guys have said about, you know, being wounded, you know, my my mom again ever the poet she says that we bond on our broken edges and i definitely believe in that so yeah i think that's it's great i think that's a way i could wrap it up i'm just reading your t-shirt for the first time um shelby will you i don't know if dalton can read his own t-shirt so i'm going to get shelby to read this t-shirt <laughs> It says, love thy neighbor, thy homeless neighbor, thy Muslim neighbor, thy black neighbor, thy gay neighbor, thy immigrant neighbor, thy Christian neighbor, thy Jewish neighbor, thy atheist neighbor, thy addicted neighbor. What a great t-shirt. So listeners, if you need hope for the future of the world and our faith, I just, as I connect with millennials, both of these two people are in their early 20s, I think. I think you're both younger than 25. Um, I just have great hope for the future and your insights, your maturity. I just think, you know, Heavenly Father is sending people wired. When you talk about Dalton, you've always been an LGBTQ ally. I just have noticed more and more that just comes natural for them. They didn't have to be converted like I did or have to do a hard drive reset like I had to do and just wipe away everything I've learned over five decades that you just, and not to say you're yeah. the first one to say, I don't have this perfect, but I just think that's the way Heavenly Father is sending some of his children and it makes me very hopeful. So um, Shelby Huey and Dalton Bradford, thank you for, from on behalf of all of our listeners for being on another episode of Listen, Learn and Love hosted by Richard Austin. Mm -hmm.